Hey everyone, it's Doug Melia and I'm your host for the Same Kit Different Day podcast and today I've got with me Jordan Wiley. Jordan, how are you? Uh, very good, thank you. How's it going, Doug? Yeah, good, not bad at all. Which end of the country are you in today? I am in sunny Hampshire, down uh, down in the southwest of England. Oh, excellent. Everywhere's sunny today. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm at home, so St Anne's not so far from your hometown. Yeah, back up in Blackpool, yeah. From, uh, that, that's my real home, back up in, uh, in Lancashire. Back in Stanley Park. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, yeah, obviously we've been friends for a long time, and I wonder if you could just tell our listeners about how we first met and sort of what our first involvement was. Yeah, no problem at all. So, yeah, I think um, for me, I, I um, you know, I joined the army at a very young age, at, at 16, and then I, I had sort of four or five years in the army, and then I left for a short period. In that time, I was looking for, for sort of new opportunities, um, and, you know, I, I, I came across your business, and you had a, obviously an excellent reputation around the uh, country for delivering uh, different types of training, r- ranging from conflict management to control and restraint, uh, close protection, uh, uh, the martial arts, and you know, so it was it was really interesting for me because it was, it, you know, it, it gave me a different insight into certainly how we manage risk. Um, and normally, as a soldier, when you think of risk, you think of the physical aspects of maybe holding a weapon and firing a gun. Whereas yeah. actually, you know, what I learned from working with you in, in your side of the business were actually it sort of reshaped my thinking because it taught me that actually good security, good risk management is actually done with your head, not necessarily with, with, with force as such. Um, so, you know, that's how we met. And I obviously spent a couple of years working with, uh, when, spent probably about a year working with you and then decided right. that I was going to re- rejoin back uh, to the army. I remember that. I remember the day you said it. Yeah. So what, what way did you go back in apart from working for me? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Apart, apart from working for you for a year, which sent me over the edge. Yeah. Um, <laughs> No, it was um, for me. I think when you when when you've been in the military system, I think, and then you come out of it, uh, one thing you lose is that sense of, of sort of belonging and pride and purpose. Yeah. I think from from going from somebody who's you know wearing the Queen's uniform, wearing your medals, polishing your boots, and I think I think a lot of soldiers you, you take that for granted when you're doing it, and you see it sometimes if I dare say a bit of an inconvenience and a bit of a, yeah. a bit of a pain in a pain in the backside sometimes, but actually. When when you lose that, you know you you, you really miss it, and and you it's, it's the old saying of you don't know what it's you've got till it's gone, I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And going from being in uniform to being in a tracksuit some days, working in schools with kids, it's a massive contrast, isn't it? It is a massive contrast, but also you know it, it taught me lots of different things. And actually, even though I went back to the army and then did a sort of another short career there of five years, actually working and not so much working, but, but working with or, or, or volunteering and helping children and young people is something that, that that is really important to me right now today. And that probably started when I was working with you and, and you know, you worked with a lot of sort of disadvantaged children, people who were okay. you know, maybe easily led off the rails and needed that sort of nudge onto the straight and narrow. And so actually it's gone full circle because although I'm working with children, it, you know, it's in a different context, but it, it's certainly those skills that I learned. Uh, working with people like yourself are, are invaluable in, in, in understanding young people and how they think and how they work. Yeah, people are people wherever, wherever they are, aren't they? So one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was um, the charity that you're involved in. You still, you're still you building a school, is that right? Yeah, so we, 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 we volunteer. I'm a volunteer trustee and I, um, we're trying to build a school for children on the Horn of Africa in a, in a little country called Djibouti, uh, which is 
got lots of refugees there um, that have been displaced by the war in Yemen and, and the conflict in Somalia. So I just think, I think as a former soldier, when you've seen the, the sort of hardships that children face firsthand, it gives you a real perspective on life. And, and you know, and, and I, you know, I go into schools in the UK and I try to share the, the journey of these children overseas and, and, and try to almost sort of embed a sense of gratitude because even though, you know, we might not have the greatest lives, we, we have a lot better lives than most people and so do our children. Yeah, the lo- yeah, the lockdown's brought a lot of that about. I think that's a really good way of explaining to the kids sort of just where on the scale what we're going through sits when you compare it to some of the war-torn countries and the childhoods that these other kids are having. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't I couldn't agree more. You know, I'm looking at I'm I'm just been working on a document ironically before we 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 started this podcast and I'm looking at um, how COVID-19 is affecting the children and 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 the sort of populations in Somalia and Djibouti and and I, it just made me think that, you know, we're worrying about this, but actually they're, they're still in the middle of a war zone with bombs being dropped every day. And they're still having to worry about the thing that we think is the most important thing in the world, uh, this yeah. COVID-19. So, it, you know, it, it does give you perspective on life. And, we, you know, we're, we're sat at home, most of us, with our loved ones. We're, we're getting three meals a day still. And even yeah. though we've had a lot of instability with jobs and we don't know what's coming next, we're still better off than probably about 90% of the world. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So one, we, we had a, a conference lined up and although the idea of my podcast is to interview people around the use of the kit and that's where the sort of same same kit, different day came from, it became a bit ironic that we are, it's, it's, it is like the same shit, different day for everyone stuck in lockdown now. Yeah. So I've been speaking to a lot of people that were lined up to speak at our conference. So just to sort of pull it back in, one of the things I wanted you to talk about at the conference was what your memories are of when you were in the military and you had to work with detainees because the conference was going to be about use of force and we had a lot of different specialists. And I always wanted to speak to someone around the military aspects of detention, containment and even possibly interrogation. Yeah, so it was, um, you know, it was it was it's a long time ago, but it was it was actually 15 years ago this week um, oh, right. that I was... Yeah, 15 years ago this week. So we, we, tragically, actually, the only reason I remember that is because we lost a, a, a very good friend of ours on the 29th of May. And we, we've just been talking to some of the guys who were sort of on patrol when, when this particular incident happened, on the, oh, no. uh, which is next Friday. Uh, we lost Cortal Brackenbury, who was a, a young 21-year-old uh, lad from uh, Yorkshire, from a place called Ghoul. And um, he was a great friend of ours. So, yeah, it was, it was ironic. But, yeah, 15 years ago, uh, right now, literally, I was sat in Iraq in a place called... Alamara in the Maysan province, which is on the uh, Iraq-Iran border, and it was people. People will may not remember the name Alamara, but they will know. A lot of people remember some of the battles that took place there because, for example, uh, the, the Victoria Cross and uh, lots of military crosses were given out in in 2004 from from the incidents that took place in Alamara. You also you may remember the six Royal Military Police that were slaughtered in 2003. That was just south of Alamara. So there was yeah. there was a lot of activity in, in in Alamara. It was a pretty brutal place 15, 16 years ago today. And, you know, what? Yeah, the role that I got sent out there to do, um, which was not my sort of primary role in the army, but I, I, I volunteered for, for doing some courses and I ended up working in intelligence. And my, my role was an intelligence operator and I was yeah. I was there to... My, my primary role on that tour was to collate intelligence, gather information, process it, and then disseminate it to sort of senior commanders, tactical decision makers. Yeah. One of my secondary roles, I trained at uh, the Defence Intelligence Centre in a place called Chicksands in Bedfordshire. And I was trained as what they call a, a, a prisoner handler and a tactical questioner, which meant essentially that when we would capture prisoners or you know suspected terrorists who were responsible for 
making things like the improvised explosive devices or, 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 or snipers taking shots at British patrols. When we, when we caught these people, then they, we, we sort of put them through uh, a process, you know, and we would have to detain them. We would have to then take them into um, a sort of detention center, which would be part of our, our army camp and military camp. And then yeah. um, we, we would often, because it, unless we would have interpreters with us, we would also, what was interesting at the time, I always remember thinking is we, we would have a human rights sort of neutral sort of expert with us who would who'd be there oh yeah oh, it was interesting for me because even though even though these were normally the people that i was dealing with were normally you know people who were known terrorists they were bad people they they had the blood of, of british or coalition yeah. they, they had blood on their hands of, of good people and so it, it, for me it was it, i always remember it being really tough because you know we were obviously ethical and we had to do everything uh, as we were guided and by the rules and regulations although there were lots of stories in iraq has made the mainstream media of, of things like torture and abuse of prisoners from from americans and british you know i don't know a lot of those photographs that. were fake though i would like to add yeah absolutely and that was one of the challenges um, yeah. at the time I, I remember the backlash the backlash of that because we yeah. I think it was, I can't remember the newspaper, but it was obviously what Pierce Morgan was responsible for at the time. He published That's these right. papers, News of the World or The Mirror or something like that. And it was all fabricated photos of, of yeah. coalition forces that, that, that didn't actually happen. And, and, and the problem for us on the ground, because that was exactly in 2005, actually. And, and what happened was that, you know, people started attacking more patrols in response to, to, to what they thought were real photographs. And yes. the, yeah, the political implications were huge at the time. And, and you know, and I'm, I have no doubt and, and that people probably got, got injured, perhaps even got killed as a result of, of the actions of those newspapers that published uh, those yes. photos. It, it was pretty tragic, uh, really. But, yeah, but our, our job was to process prisoners. So we would we would bring them in, um, you know, and we would put them in a room. But I always, as I say, I always remember the irony for me was that we always had somebody watching over us. And, and sometimes I felt that we, we even, you know, dare I say, even treated the prisoners better than, than some of the soldiers were getting treated in our own <laughs> camp in terms of, you know, the, yeah. we had to give them water every hour. We had to feed them when they were hungry. You know, we, we couldn't just go and get food and water if we were hungry, but yet no. we would have to be giving them anything they wanted. And I just, I always remember thinking this is, this is crazy because these are people who are, who are murderers, really. So, yeah. you know, not that I was an expert in, in detainee handling, but I'd done a, you know, a, a course for probably three or four weeks before I went there. And, um, but yeah, it was, it was tactical questioning, really, to try and extract information um, from, from these people. Um, you know, we, we weren't allowed to do any of the things that you see in the movies, putting them in, in, in stress positions or waterboarding or any of these sort of no. things that you might see on films. It certainly wasn't my experience of being a, a detainee handler. So that's great. It's great to hear that perspective because all we have is what's what's out there from the mainstream media. And like you say, it, there's blood on the mainstream media's hand or, hands almost from causing the further attacks to happen. Now, the human rights, I'm, I'm a member of um, the International correction and prisons association and just read I, I like reading about the different perspectives and one of the things i always come back to is this sort of this idea of correcting people and and treating people but from a military point of view it's not about that like you said it's about gathering intelligence and information from these people and there's a lot to be said that if you treat anyone really badly they'll tell you what you want anyway they'll probably make something up to get out of the situation yeah, I think so. I think absolutely. I think you know, if it, it, not that I've ever experienced it or seen it, but absolutely, if you you know, if you're going to torture somebody, if you're going to hurt somebody and cause them physical harm, they will tell you whatever you want to hear. Um, I have no doubt. You know, there, there is a, a huge psychological aspect in of it, and, and I I think my more recent experience of, although it's not dealing with with prisoners as such, but certainly 
in terms of, of, of tactical questioning or, yeah. or interrogation in its lightest form would be working on the, the Channel 4 show, Hunted, where we go and speak yeah. to you know, we go and speak to a fugitive's family member, and for example, we, we, we might we might pull on the old psychological levers and say, okay, if you're not going to tell us, then we'll start searching your house and pulling up your floorboards, and all of a sudden they'll still tell <laughs> us because they don't want that to happen. You know, so yeah. there is a massive psychological aspect into any form of questioning, and not not just in a prisoner context, but even in in a job interview. You know, whatever it might be, there, psychology is a huge part of that. I think. Definitely, yeah. So, what have you learned from working on uh, Channel Four Haunted? Has it been enjoyable? It's been it's been great fun. What have I learned? I would say that one of the one of the interesting things I've learned, or the probably the the, the comical things I've learned, is that if you dig hard enough in, in into someone's life, everyone's got a skeleton that they don't want you to find. <laughs> <laughs> I can believe in that. I can definitely believe in that. I mean, and those those skeletons do come out every now and again. I I know I'm quite active on social media. And we had a chat recently about sort of dealing with trolls and dealing with people who don't like that people have climbed and done well for themselves and things like that. And one of the best things you sort of said to me was if a troll calls you out on something, then just say then just say to them either yes or no and just like just just answer them rather than sort of panicking about it, hiding about it and letting it eat you up inside. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's something that I learned from 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 again from somebody who shared advice with me. And actually when you know whether it's a bully or a troll online, but certainly in the in the social media context, if if somebody wants to try and call you out because you've made a mistake, you know that they feel powerful and they feel that they've yeah. got some kind of hold over you. And the moment that the only way you can take that away is by acknowledging it. And then and actually, when you acknowledge it, and say, you know what, I made a mistake and I, I'll own my mistake and I'll hold my hand up. I'm not perfect. And straight away, you've removed the power from them because they've got nothing on you anymore. You've publicly acknowledged what you've done wrong. Um, and yeah, you know, it might be embarrassing for the short term, but actually, you, I, I think. You gain a lot more respect for, for having the integrity to own up when you've done something wrong or, 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 or you know been said the wrong thing or, or tweeted something that's inappropriate you know you, we all make mistakes and that's the only way we learn I think yeah and it's, and to try and put it from that social world into the real world because like the people that like you are walking past giving you the thumbs up or the people that are laughing your jokes are doing the crying faces well like, if somebody pointed at you in the street and called you out for something you'd 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 have a chat you'd have a chat with them and you'd say oh sorry you feel like that yeah that that was what happened or that was and it'd go away but when translate that into a, two people sat behind a keyboard you don't know who it is you don't know how many of them there are and it does give you that fear and i think if people can try and put it back if this was real life what would i do i think it might be easier to deal with yeah i think so and I, but i i guess at the same time i think you you wouldn't even have these problems because the the, the, the normally these bullies these trolls are the faceless they're cowards they yeah. that is the only power they have to sit behind the keyboard and and, and you know and in reality sometimes I, I, I've always been quite affected by even the sort of one or two negative comments where a lot of people can just bat it off water off a duck's back. So I'm the same, mate. Yeah, I go through my feedback forms. If I get a nine, I'm phoning them up. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm the same. And I think it's because you, you know, you, you try and you try and have the highest of standards in everything you do. You know, you, I think we're the same in that. You, you, whatever you do, you want to be the best that you believe in striving for excellence. And yeah. uh, so it is, it's quite disheartening and quite tough when you get things wrong. But 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 it is the only way you learn. If you do everything right all the time, you know, you, you don't really get anything from that ultimately. No. So how was it? Your last expedition was cut a bit short, and you had to uh, you had to modify it and sort of uh, do a COVID nineteen version. Yeah, yeah. So this year I'm doing um, uh, an expedition, uh, an adventure called uh, Running Dangerously, the Polar Edition, which uh, transpires from an expedition I did two years ago, which was the initial uh, original Running Dangerously, which was to run 
sort of long distance endurance uh, races in yeah. Iraq, Afghanistan, and Somalia. And yeah, the next one uh, or, or the current one is is the polar version. So my challenge was to run a marathon in the t- in the ten coldest places on earth. So it it started really well in January. I went to uh, Siberia in Russia, and then I. I went to the Yukon in Canada, Alaska yeah. in the USA, and went to Iceland. And then I was literally on my way to the North Pole, uh, to the top of the earth. And then, yeah, the, the COVID-19 sort of pandemic struck. And I, I was literally in a taxi and, and we had to turn around and, and that was it. We were going into lockdown. So I, I had a couple of days before the sort of the, the, the full lockdown, you can't leave your house started. So I, I remember I you were quite innovative, innovative weren't you? Yeah, try to try to be creative, innovative. And I think that's one of the important things when you're fundraising, you know, with, with respect to everyone. Every, but a lot of people have, have climbed a mountain, jumped out of a plane or, or ran a marathon. So you have to do things differently if you want to get that media attention, you want to generate yeah. the donors, the sponsors. So I, I always try to sort of think outside the box when it's fundraising wise. And yeah, so I spoke to a spoke to a few friends and they I was offered a, a cryo chamber. So a, a sort of an, an ice chamber in, in pool. Uh, in Dorset and yeah we stuck a treadmill in there and we we ran the first ever marathon on a treadmill in a cryo chamber so it was it was it actually wasn't physically as tough as uh, as probably the marathons but I think psychologically to to, to run in a little box on a treadmill yeah. uh, you know with a little window to see through was 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 quite tough it took a lot longer than probably a normal marathon it took six or seven hours and you know, the, 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 the treadmill was freezing up with the cold temperature we got it down to minus 100 uh, for the last kilometer so it was pretty <laughs> pretty chilly in there <laughs> That's excellent. So, what's next? What's next on your agenda then? Uh, so, at the moment, a lot of you know, I'm, I've faced a lot of the challenges like everyone else. So, all my filming this year, I was quite disappointing. But you know, I'm still healthy. I'm still alive. But I, I had two documentaries going out on uh, that, that was going to be filmed for Sky um, it, before the end of the year, which have now been cancelled with no future date, which is uh, tragic, tragic for me. But yeah. uh, hunted, hunted two series of hunted. We were supposed to film as well this summer. That's that's cancelled until next year. So. Um, I've got a lot of spare time on my hands. I'm, I'm going to hopefully head to, as soon as we we can fly again, I'm going to head out on and pick up the next five legs of, of the running. So I still will go to the North Pole uh, at some point. I, I'm hoping, I'm booked in to go to Antarctica in December, Greenland in October. Uh, but I guess we, we just got to wait and see of, of, of what pans out. But um, like everyone else, though, I think you've got to stay positive. But, but also, I think where there's crisis, there are always opportunities. And we've, you know, we've all embraced in this virtual world, the podcasting, the Zoom call. So... I'm, I'm, I'm keeping my, my radar up for, for, for new things all the time and trying to stay positive. Yeah, so we, we've moved a lot of our stuff online. And obviously the actual face-to-face teaching of physical intervention just isn't something that, that, that can go now. And I've had a lot of people request, I had one this morning where someone said, oh, you can come and teach us, just wear a mask and gloves. So like I was trying to get across to him that masks and gloves aren't some magical, mythical thing that protects you. There's got to be a risk assessment and a reason for you actually doing it. And I think everyone's geared up to getting back into things and we're we're having to make a decision to say okay well yeah we could probably work our way around the guidance and we could probably get in a classroom with you but whilst the sort of death rate or the r as the the government call it sits where it is probably the risk of you getting assaulted by not having the the physical hands-on training is far less than you actually catching something spreading something and killing vulnerable members of the community so we're having to do a bit of soul searching and say you know we uh it's it's about what we should do what what we ethically should do not what we're legally allowed to do i think we've seen that mirrored on the sort of the trips to the beaches and the cars and the people flocking to the countryside as well yeah absolutely i couldn't agree more i think yes yeah, it's about doing the right thing um 
and it is, it's, it's, I get it, it's very difficult for people as well because it is, you know, it's changing the way we work, it's changing the way families, the dynamics. I speak to a lot of uh, police officers and, you know, we talk about things like uh, protection and control and restraint and the challenges and, you know, things like um, domestic violence is higher now than it's ever been, uh, you yeah. know, with, with what's going to happen in the lockdown. And I think, again, when you look at the things that you do, maybe maybe something like workshops or seminars online about this sort of thing as well is interesting because I, I think we've just got to start, we've just got to approach the world and, and, and what's going on in a very different way and try to think differently. But there are, there are, there are a whole host of new challenges that this, this problem has caused outside of the COVID, but as a result of COVID, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. The, 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 we saw an increase in the use of soft restraints just where people were using them as an alternative to cuffs or people were looking at where they're having to hold people for prolonged periods of time rather than having to go hands-on they were they were in a cuff so as long as that's risk assessed properly it's actually been working quite well online it's been quite good because the correctional facilities we support overseas and the forensic hospitals you know there's no chance of us getting to australia anytime soon so we've put sort of an information exchange online which we did we talked about a couple of years ago and we just said it's not as good as face to face so we just got a reciprocal agreement now that the trainers over there do some teaching they send us the video footage for us to assess and then we can we can send it back and you know it's 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 a reasonable adjustment some people might say oh, you can't learn that way but what i'd say is what, what choice have we got you know people need this training we we had an order of 150 kits from from holland the other day I'm not about to send stuff to people to use in the likes of detention centres or, or or places because, like you say, you've got the scrutiny of people there for human rights. And if people have got kit or equipment and they don't know how to use it properly, that's when it, it, it should be scrutinised. So for us, we've moved a lot of our stuff online. And to be honest, I'm quite enjoying the, the, the newness of it, if you like. No, absolutely. I think so. Yeah, as you say, definitely. You know, it's all right having the kit and equipment, but but knowing how to use it correctly and and legally, ethically is 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 paramount. And I think yeah, online. I think we're going to see a lot more of it. I think I think the world will change how how the world does business with meetings, conference calls, training. And I think also, like you say, you know, people are videoing it, so it can be after action reviewed. People can still pick it apart and and pick up the learning points, the the objectives and things. And 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 actually, when I did my you know, I spent quite a long time with Pearson at Excel doing yeah. standards verification overseas. And quite often we would use video evidence for, for a lot to make sure people were meeting the standards. It wasn't uncommon to, to film no. a close protection, you know, vehicle drill or whatever it might be. It, yeah. it, it was, it's perfectly acceptable in, in any international training standard. Yeah, and, and a, lot of, a lot of the systems of physical restraint or control and restraint, when it comes down to it in a court when something goes wrong, uh, the court are scrutinising the training manual and they're scrutinising the training videos. So uh, my my argument would sort of be, well, if doctors are medical reviewing techniques and courts are making decisions on video evidence, and um, well, why don't why don't we use it? There's there's so I mean there's so many apps now with I mean there's this um, Facebook portal that follows you around the room, which we've been using really. It's been really handy for actual the mobility of techniques and things. And I think as technology does go forward, people are going to be left behind if they're relying on that face to face and. The, for me, the beauty is I can go back, whereas if I blink, I might miss some of the techniques. Or if I'm having a particularly long day, I might not be able to properly assess somebody. But if I can scrutinise that video in my own time and that footage, um, it's, it's got to be more conducive. Absolutely. And I think it's certainly, you know, that, that sort of strategy is used by military, by law enforcement. Yeah. And before we, before we go on operations, we have to do things like uh, mission rehearsal exercises and everything 
will go into after action review. There'll be filming, there'll be footage, there'll be what people said. And, that, and, and that's all we can learn because as you say, you blink and you've missed something or you forget it. But actually if it's been filmed, you can go and you can pick it to pieces and, and make sure it doesn't happen again. Or, or, and also at the same time, pick out what you're doing well so we can share those great lessons. So I, I, I think people have to be more open-minded uh, because the world's changing. And if you don't change with the times, you're going to get left behind. Yeah, and it's not a high eight video camera being run around behind a, a tank anymore. Everybody's got a, a narrative creating device in the hand. Everybody's got it. And the old sort of saying, if it's not written down, it didn't happen. It might even become, if it's not recorded, did it happen? Because you can write something down, twist it any way you want. But at least if you've got footage or several angles of footage, you can make a better decision. Absolutely. That's what... It's quite funny because that's what the producers on Hunted always tell us. If it's not been caught on film, it didn't happen because you've got to, be able to show it to <laughs> Of course, show it to the yeah. Public. No one wants to watch <laughs> you writing on a screen, do they? <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, but it's, it's definitely, it's, it's the future, I think, uh, 100%. And we have to we have to find ways to in, in, embrace it and, and, and sort of get it, it, it as part of our lives because it's yeah, things like these virtual quizzes. that every, I, I've been in loads of quizzes, loads of uh, yeah. news interviews. I've done five or six Sky News interviews in lockdown and it's all been through Zoom and you just think, well, wh why do I spend all yes. this money travelling to centre of London, £400 or whatever, on a train in a hotel when actually we achieved exactly the same sat from my bedroom or whatever? <laughs> There's got to be questions asked about that. There's got to be questions about the sheer waste of money for the meetings about meetings we're forced to attend. Definitely. I think, look, I think people who work in sort of loss prevention now will be looking at budgets and things. The amount of meetings that we, you know, all of us have flown to in places like you know, Dubai, Paris, yeah. New York, and actually we could have done everything via a Zoom call. It's, it's incredible, really. It's, 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 we probably wouldn't be having the problems with jobs and the economy now if we'd have saved that money. Yeah, ex exactly. So I've, I'm relatively new to the, to the maritime sector. Um, my, my sort of ex experience was in security, but not at sea. So I sort of got thrown in by picking up a couple of contracts doing training for ship security officers. So I had to go down and jump into a swimming pool and go into this burning house in Liverpool and put breathing apparatus on. It was doing my STCW. It was really, it was good. It was fun. It was really um, out of my comfort zone, if you, if you like. So from I've seen a different angle now of working on ships and I've had to sort of adjust my knowledge and my expertise around that to try and keep learning to see how their laws differ and, and things like that. Um, how was your experience of maritime? Did you have any experience with, with having to keep people detained whilst you were on vessels? Uh, yes, yeah, so we, um, there was, you know, I spent about five years working um, at sea after I left the army as a maritime security uh, sort of advisor, uh, consultant, uh, if you like. And although mainly I was, sort of dealing with piracy correct but there was incidents where we would um sort of counter in a counter-terrorist role so we would be searching people uh, if people caused any problems while we were in in cargo operations yeah. we might have to detain them uh, put them in a room uh, and and sort of but but again it was it was pretty much the same principles uh, that because we were all ex-military so we we only knew what we knew sort of thing but you know there was not without not with, without mentioning any company names yeah. you know I'd not been trained in that before I went on that ship even though I was expected to deal with any problems I'd had no specific training except for what I knew as what was well, right welcome to private security experience. say again sorry I said welcome to private security getting on the get on the ground no <laughs> yeah, training. Exactly. Exactly. It's, uh, it's depending on uh, and where you work in the world and, and, and in what role. Well, uh, as you say, it, it, it's a bit like an Indians in some of the, some some parts of the industry. But 
but also at the same time, you know, I, I like you, I've worked for some great companies who take yeah. um, security risk management and all the things that should come with it very seriously as well. But, but it's like any industry, you'll get the good guys and the bad guys, I guess. Yeah, and if anything's in its infancy, because I, I I loved your first book, Citadel, and like it was in its infancy then. It had not kicked up. It, they were just drafting in people that were they thought had the requisite skill sets, and you sort of pretty much jumped in at the deep end, didn't you? Yeah, it was um, when I, when I entered the industry in two thousand and nine. It was you know I have no qualms in saying it was it was a bit like the wild west, and yeah. you know I would get phone calls saying. You know, I can remember making phone calls to say, what do I do with these arms, these weapons? Um, is somebody going to collect them? I'm going to store, store them in an armory. And then, you know, the person who owned the security company would say, no, just dump them over the side in the Red Sea. We, we we're not paying for them to go in country. And and and, and you look, and the captain's looking at you going, are you for, for real? Are you serious? And, and, and I don't know what the right and wrong is. You know, I, who am I to, uh, you know, so there's these sorts of incidents that were quite common um, yeah. and, it, and it wasn't unheard of. And then, you know, you'd get on a ship and you, you were told that the guys you were working with were ex-Royal Marines or Paras, but actually he, he was a guy who worked on the doors in, in Blackpool or something, you know. It was yeah. it was, it was a paint and decorator in his nine-to-five job. And it, it was, it was it was the Wild West, but it was a new industry. It, it was it was something that was growing. We saw that sort of gold rush effect of, we needed more people than we could, you know, the the, the, yeah. the demand was, 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 the supply couldn't keep up with the demand. And, and that that was always going to happen, but but over time, over the years that came, you know, lots of of, of rules, regulations came, and it became regulated, um, and 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 things improved. And you know, it's a very different industry, sort of ten years on than it was then. And uh, and I'm pleased to say it's a lot safer and 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 a lot better. Yeah, I found that from from what it's from primarily the cruise sector we've been involved with. And we, we, I was initially contracted to do a day, can you do a day's training that includes batons, cups, and I sort of pointed out that you need to have a training needs analysis, we need to have a job specification, there's a lot of legal stuff in here that comes before we get to actually putting the training in. And we found a lot of it, we, we sort of do a checkpoint escalatory procedure training before we do anything to try and make sure that people are treating passengers correctly, they're getting them lined up so they're in the shade, they're not hungry, they're not getting searched sort of at the dock on the ship and then when they go to to shore as well so it it really has evolved and and i've enjoyed sort of being a part of it as it's moved moved forward so regards the the military did you see any changes in the uh the the prisoner handler role from when you started to sort of present day um i think you know i was i was somebody who I wasn't a specialist in it. I was somebody who was trained in it as part of my secondary yeah. role. And, you know, there, there are people like the, uh, the Royal Military Police who deal with prisoners and detainees every day on operations. And, yeah. uh, but but, but I, I, I think, you know, any, anything to do with the military law enforcement is constantly evolving. And I think one thing that the military and, you know, the, the, the security forces are really good at is, is, is continually analysing what works and what doesn't work. And normally, because they're a government, they're a, they're a public sector force, they'll be held accountable for anything that goes wrong. Um, yeah. so, 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 so they have to evolve quite quickly and move quite quickly. But, I, you know, I, I think in terms of, of training, um, I, I, you know, w- w- the, the troops that go on operations these days, that they're expected to do what perhaps special forces would have done 20 years ago, whether it's like compound entries, whether it's interrogations, whether you know, with the army has advanced so much. And as a young soldier on operations these days, you, you get a lot of responsibility at a young age. And I don't think you can ever have too much training. And, and I think it's these, these extra skills um, like, you know, um, how we handle detainees, prisoners, how we treat people. These are all the things that they're almost... 
the, the, the sort of like the soft skills in life because actually they are what are going to the, the things like how you handle a relationship or how you handle a prisoner when that's perceived by the outside world you know if you're at a vehicle checkpoint in in Basra or the Helmand province the way you deal with people that, that you're arresting will have a direct impact on how the, the, the rest of the population see you you know whether you, you have the, the, the morals the values uh, 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 and you're carrying all the sort of high standards of the British military or are you just another rogue militant like no different than the Taliban or or al-Qaeda you know and, and you have to demonstrate through positive action that you're doing the right thing because you know I, I've been fortunate enough to go back to places like Iraq and Afghanistan as a civilian and they have a very different opinion of, of me uh, you know when I'm not wearing a uniform and uh, and, yeah. and we have to win we, as a soldier on the ground you have to win over the hearts and minds of the people and the only way you can do that is by treating them with with the utmost respect uh, and um, and whether we like it or not we have to remain professional even if they are people who have they've got you know blood on their hands of our colleagues and friends we have to if you start treating those people like they treated us, you know, we're no better than them and we drop down to their level. Yeah, and I think that's really what I wanted to tie in because you see echoes of that across every single sector. So my first job sort of as a young martial artist, I went on to work the doors and it was always, oh, those bouncers, they'll throw you down the stairs. And then yeah. the, the bouncers would say, oh, don't let, the, don't let the pigs get involved. They'll beat you up and put you in a cell. And it was always this us and them. And it's never been more more clear than in a military situation. There's the goodies and the baddies. But as soon as you start moving away from that and saying, look, you know, the, these conflicts are caused by a variety of different things, usually money or because of dirty black stuff in the ground that's being dug up. Yeah. We've got to look at how we treat people because it's not just about... Um, uh, how people feel it's about safety as well because if they if if one person disrespects one we're having a similar thing with the um uh, different u.s police forces as well there's this almost this that the, the child killers and the, they'll they'll cause problems and there's brutality and things like that and i think if we if, for me it's not about more restraint training the emphasis should be more on the de-escalation and as you say the soft skills, learning how to talk to people, how to de-escalate people, how to win friends and influence people, basically. No, I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, that, like we said at the start and something that I learned from you, you know, many years ago was that, you know, good good risk management, good security is done by people with the brain who can think, not by people who cut, you know, big muscles or weapons. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that, you know, I found that in, in Iraq, Afghanistan, Somalia two years ago when I was there, I can honestly say, and I often say to people that I saw more acts of kindness, humanity, love, compassion than I've ever seen in our own country. And that was yeah. from a place that most of our, you know, if I, if I ask somebody, 90% of the UK population, what they know about Iraq or Afghanistan, they would say bombs, bullets, bad people, uh, you know, yeah. war Sand conflict. Caves. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it, but actually, it's, I've seen, I, I've met, I've got friends there who are kinder, more compassionate than most of the people I know in, in our own country. So, but but again, we have to consider the media factor in that, and that's that's as a, as a result of being brainwashed by what we see on on a TV or in the newspaper often. Yeah, which has never been more prevalent this at this moment in time. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, cool. The other thing I wanted to talk about before we go, because I really appreciate you giving your time up, um, was the book that you and your daughter have just put out. Yeah, yeah, been there. Um, obviously, we tried to we tried to be as productive as as possible in in lockdown. And one of the ways with the homeschooling, we we, we had a project about a year ago, and it was to try and learn every every flag in every capital city of the world. And you know, she was a lot better than, uh, at me than it, to be honest. <laughs> I, I, I'm, still, I'm still struggling. Um, 
and so we, we decided that it'd be, it'd be really good fun to put it into a book and actually share share what we did with other children and, and then it, it, you know it was a good timing that we were in lockdown because people were looking for new ideas and yeah and yeah we, we 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 sent it off and we got it published and it was and we we had a local charity the able foundation who deal with uh, mitochondrial disease and they they sponsored um a couple of thousand copies for the lo- local nhs workers so all the all the nhs and the key workers all their children got a copy of a free book locally um and then uh, yeah so it was, it was just a good fun project and actually i you know i probably learned as much as my my daughter did by doing it about interesting facts about these these weird and wonderful countries of the world yeah i think by doing so people have often said to me oh when i was I've, i learned that when i was writing a book and it sort of never dawned on me but i think this is the 10th the 10th or the 11th podcast i've done since i just thought of it as as an idea of something to keep me busy and keep me on the radar whilst i was in lockdown myself but every person i've spoke to and everything i've done i really have learned something i've picked something up new and i, and I suppose that's what this lockdown's about just trying to speak to people find things out and then see how we can apply them afterwards yeah, definitely. I think that, you know, you can either sit at home and you can lie in bed watching your Netflix every day or you can make it productive and, and, and learn something new, pick up a new skill, stay in touch with people. And, and hopefully then you hit the ground running when we get out of this and, and you know, you've made good progress. Because uh, I think if you if you go downhill and you get into those negative routines, it's a slippery slope and it's very difficult to get out of. And that's why I think, you know, staying active, keeping fit, healthy um, and keeping the mind busy is really important in these, these challenging times. Absolutely, absolutely, mate. So, what what have you got on for the rest of the day? Anything exciting? Um, so tonight, I'm yeah. Uh, tonight, I've got an Instagram live for the Army Cadets where I'm interviewing um, Johnny Mercer, the the, the politician. Um, oh yeah, he's the, the Veterans Minister. Um, so I'm interviewing him at seven o'clock, and then at eight thirty, I've got a, a, a quiz night hosted by Kay Burley from Sky News. We do every Thursday with uh, lots of interesting people, which is good fun. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Well, Jordan, thanks so much for your time, mate. I'm sure we'll catch up soon and enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Doug, and uh, keep up the great work, mate. Thank you. No worries.